How do you feel about Hugh's beard? I like it. I, I, I like the fact that it's got a little bit of white in it. This character. Listen, it's nice that you call me Hugh. What's this Ferris stuff from last week's pod? Just That's how we refer to you when you're not there. It's just Ferris, Ferris, Ferris. But it's more dismissive, isn't it, to just use the surname? Well, since when did I become a grammar school student? I think it's not necessarily that you were a grammar school student. It's that perhaps the three people who were talking about you were... That might be the problem. Oh, well, alternatively, the you th- are the only, teachers. Only two of the three people who were talking about him were grammar school students. I, well, in that case, me and Chinch apologise. <laughs> may, maybe you consider me an apprentice to your highfalutin soccer chat. No, but I'm, I'm, I've never really had a surname nicknamed. It doesn't really work with Smith. Smudger. Everybody, no, every Smith is a smudge. Yeah, I was taught smudger occasionally at school, but no one's ever called me Smith. No one ever taught... Whereas if you've got a more... What about Smithy? Or is that, a, is that yeah, more Smithy, of a southern Smithy thing? Smithy occasionally, but I'm not massively keen on it. But I think when you've got an unusual surname, as both of you do, then it's, it's much more easy to, to refer to you by that unusual surname. Well, it seems like an explanation. It's not particularly one I'm happy with, because anyway, it just felt it's... like you were... I don't, why are you being polite about it? We were being dismissive about him, because he'd chosen not to be with us. He's apparently <laughs> being on honeymoon with his relatively new wife, because let's be honest, the wedding was some time ago now. Second honeymoon. Was, second honeymoon. Get, no, apparently f- full moon before it was a mini moon. Okay. Yeah, but you've got second to remember your, your mini moon was more lavish and extravagant than many people's full moons. Can I say that we met people out there who were also on their honeymoon and they got married in April. So our June date was by comparison Fairly respectful. Right, let's, let's, for the benefit of our listeners, let's, let's flick through some of the highlights. What was the best animal you saw on your honeymoon? I'm very partial to a giraffe. Okay. Is the plural of giraffe giraffes or just giraffe? No, I saw many giraffes. I think it's, no, it's not like sheep, it's giraffes. So I, I, we were lucky to see many giraffes, and I found them incredibly engaging. They move so smoothly, despite their slightly angular frame and the fact that they're massive. They are massive, famously. Um, we had a bit of fun with the black rhino, um, which is great because so they're rare you, to see. You, are, you were having fun. Had a bit of with fun with the black, black rhino. rhino. It, it, it charged the vehicle, but uh, that's fine. Um, and it doesn't sound that fun. That sounds terrifying. We've, and this is apparently very rare, and we're very lucky. Um, we heard a lion roar. Oh, because okay. they don't tend to roar um, really very regularly. Mm. Um, but we saw we saw a lion roar, and then that same lion, about fifteen minutes later, had some had some lion fun with a lady lion. Ah, I see. So this was your weekend trip to Nosley Safari Park. <laughs> yes. How was the honeymoon? <laughs> it was an excellent time had by all, honestly. And there was as much rain in South Africa as there was at Nosley Safari Park. We, I've, I have now seen wet lions in two different continents. What was the best thing you ate? Um, Let's hope that isn't also lion or black rhino. <laughs> yeah, black rhino, yeah. <laughs> black rhino. Yeah, it got a little testy and there was a fight and dinner was served. black rhino's testy. Um, no, there, there, may well be, um, there may well be some vegetarians listening, so I'm not going to dwell on this too much. Um, Gemma would say ostrich. Okay. She had a, uh, an amazing ostrich steak. Um, and I think that there, when they have venison, mm. particularly on a game reserve, it's often not just deer it's any number of deer so you can have okay. impala venison you can have kudu venison you can have eland venison um and i had eland venison steak and it was really good we were really lucky we had loads of incredible food mm. and obviously 
I am now massively overweight. You don't look it. And have just bought wearing, a lot of special K. But you are wearing <laughs> vertical stripes to make you look more thin. Well, welcome to Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. Also the podcast that t- seemingly completely falls off the rails when I'm not here. Steve singing, a positive topic, absolutely no appetite-wetting discussion of what culinary delights you are enjoying. One week, I missed one week, and all those things happen. Although, aside from that, I thought it was excellent. Thanks we, for the feedback. <laughs> we, we, we were just getting on with it. We didn't feel the need to dwell upon what food was eaten. It was, uh, it was pastries. It, it was pa- pastries, fresh fruit, and uh, it was delicious. a pot of coffee. It was a very much a workmanlike kind of <laughs> weakened team performance. Damning with fam- faint praise. No, 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 but I think that's good. I think it, you, you've got a tougher away trip in the week. You've had to rest some players. You go out, you grind out a 2-0 win. It's fine. It was, it was an Im- I'd probably say 1-0. It was an impressive, impressive display. Yeah, we, we, it was just like a worn-down session, really, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Well, some right equally now. positive reaction to come a little later uh, in the podcast. But first, the team, as you may well have already realised, is depleted once again. Andy Hinchcliffe has essentially been substituted for me, Hugh Ferris. I am the slightly younger, more progressive fullback to bomb down the flank, chasing an equaliser in the final few minutes. Unfortunately, for this analogy, though, I also have terrible knees. So joining me are Steve Wyeth of BT Sport, and this weekend coming up, the BBC's Match of the Day, and Rory Smith of the New York Times, and this weekend coming up, still of the New York Times, and you are spending this week in Russia. I'm going to Russia. To enjoy not only the World Cup draw, but also a little jaunt out to Siberia. Yeah, I thought I'd, I'd go. I think it's Siberia. My geography's not perfect on that bit of Russia, but I thought I'd go and see it's a bit a large, of the country. large bit it's of Large Russia. place. It's very cold there. Are I have you, to run my coat. What's the logic that you're sort of, you've, you're going 80% of the way by going to Moscow, so you might have might as well complete the journey. Yeah, just a, is it quite expensive to get to Russia? And there's a whole whole heap of visa nonsense to get through. So I thought, since, since I've filled out all the paperwork, I might as well make it worth my while. So then they're relaxing it for the World Cup, but they didn't relax it for the draw. No, they have they've kind of relaxed it for the draw. There is a special draw visa it, it came back very quickly draw visa I like that yeah you, do, you uh, yeah it's, it, I had to do it I've, I've filled out so many Russian visa forms in the last nine months that I'm sick of filling out Russian visa forms I might just move to Russia and become a citizen uh, you're actually going because you're not you're not just going to Red Square and we'll get your photo taken in front of St Basil's Cathedral you're actually going to be able to go inside the Kremlin yeah apparently we just get to wander about it's fine uh, just go wherever you like access all areas no forms for that inside the Kremlin uh, yeah the draw's in the Kremlin now the Kremlin is a complex yes it's an it's an area within that you have lots of buildings yeah. that are so I'm guessing it's not like Vladimir's house they're not doing it there. I'm sure there is a palace of sorts, but I don't think the president lives there. I don't know where he lives, but this is in a theatre. The drawer itself is in a theatre. I bet he's got a bunk there somewhere, though. If he needs to stay overnight, <laughs> yeah. you know, like yeah, a, a, yeah. a late-night negotiation. Like a futon. You know, Do you think maybe he's, he'd maybe just leave sleeping bags dotted around? Because <laughs> he needs the bed down. He gets up really late, Putin. Putin gets up at midday, I think. Is that right? Yeah, there was a fascinating profile of him in The Times a couple of years ago. He goes to bed really late. I presume as he's watching... Like softcore stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, he likes to keep to American time. <laughs> and um, and then gets up at like midday. And then I think he sees all of his advisors in, effectively in his pajamas, which I imagine are made of oh very Churchillian human hair. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's he's a really late he's a really late riser, lad. So I might go in around lunchtime to see if he's knocking about. And um, by the way, the Kremlin Museum mm. I think is the best museum 
I have had the opportunity to visit. So, is it better than the Royal Armouries in Leeds? So, well, funnily enough, it is the Kremlin Royal Armoury. Oh, is it? So um, I recommend it did, did greatly. They, did they take their inspiration from the Royal Armouries in Leeds? I think in yeah. Leeds it right. happened first. I don't think he's been to the Hat Museum on the A6 in Stockport, so let's just reserve judgment <laughs> yeah. until okay. he's been to that one. Let's not, let's not go overboard. Favourite museums, everybody. Get in touch at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Um, I brought gifts to Steve's house. Steve has already provided us with his, which is an omelette filled with chorizoa, and peppers, which was sensational. And cheese. Mm-hmm. And, uh, cheese. and cheese. The dessert, however, is uh, courtesy of Johannesburg Airport. Amarula milk chocolates. Amarula is like a, uh, a cream I've already had one, but liqueur, they are very nice. Um, from South Africa. I'm not going to eat now because I have been getting quite a lot of stick recently for, for eating, eating very aggressively. Podcast, so I'm going to uh, save that. So that, that is a gift for the pod. Um, uh, and it's, it's like the, the Bailey's cream of South Africa, but a lot less boozy. So, um, Amarula milk chocolates, everybody. Get yours at Duty Free in Johannesburg International Airport. Um, And so to this week's subject, which after the conversation about joy on the last pod is returning to type because I am back and matters of misery. Prompted, however, not by one of us, but by a Manchester United supporting friend of Steve's who said this recently to him and I'm assuming verbatim. He says, I lent my tickets to a work colleague today. He is a season ticket holder at Old Trafford. He commented how utterly miserable the vast majority of United's home support is. Apparently, there was a very negative attitude, and he felt several of the fans were disappointed that United won as it stopped them from moaning. I think he made a good point. Are football fans actually at their happiest when things aren't going to plan? And does this explain the enduring appeal of Liverpool. I get the sense that something of a dig at the end there, because if you're a United supporting fan, uh, perhaps you have to do that regardless of how your team is doing. So why do so many supporters seem so miserable? Is it more fun to moan? And in a graph with club size and misery on the two axes, is there more misery the bigger the club and their expectations? Steve, this is a, a gentleman, a gentleman friend of yours, a gentleman caller. Uh, perhaps you could explain what uh, motivated him to tell you this, because it sounds like oh, it's, it's a second-hand story, but um, something that he feels is something that he is very familiar with. Yes, this is uh, Martin Stafford, a friend of mine who is uh, a uh, a avid listener of the podcast. Thank you, Martin, for your support. And he does occasionally get in touch with either some feedback or some topic suggestions. And this was one which I think he had started to notice himself uh, sat at Old Trafford and the fact that because he's one of the grumpiest people I know and the mm. fact that I'm able to express <laughs> that is uh, gives you an indication of his, of his mindset so the fact that uh, somebody who somebody else who knows Martin well was able to go and sit in his seats at Old Trafford and notice the grumbling going on around him was clearly sort of evidence that all is not well amongst those is it that particular section of fans at that particular club or is sort of moaning about things something that ties us together as football fans because that, that's is it more bonding to be infuriated by things than to be joyful like we were talking about just just a week ago do we know what game he was at it was one during the run that followed Manchester United's goalless draw at Anfield where they suddenly forgot about attacking right. and scoring goals Okay, but they they didn't they, so, well, they didn't lose at Old Trafford in that time. They've, they've, they've only conceded once at Old Trafford. Discontent at a time when discontent was, was yeah. at its peak from a, a Manchester United point of view. And, and I do, I think a lot of people go to watch big clubs play. This is not just a United thing, and they don't just expect to see the team win. Mm. 
they expect to see them win handsomely whilst playing expansive and entertaining football. And mm. that is just not the reality of the world. But we're not saying this is a United problem. No, we're no, not exactly. saying this is wider big... than that, even though that is uh, the context within which this complaint was made and a context which a lot of people will understand. It's a lot harder for people, I suppose, to understand if they support a club who is never going to win like Manchester United or win like Manchester United have done in the past with the style of football. So the expectations are different, but everybody still recognises some element of this argument. So I was at a do sitting next to a a do. a do. An Everton fan and a cross from an Oldham fan. And the Everton fan was bemoaning his team's lot in life and how terrible they've been under Unzi uh, this season. I think Un- David Unsworth's nickname is not helping him. That is not a nickname you can take seriously, Unzi. And Chinch is not here to defend Unzi this week. No, and, or, or describe him hilariously as a double substitution <laughs> for the 14th time. But it will still be funny. Get a new joke. Andy Hinchcliffe. The yeah. So by the way, Chinch is because of the very very busy midweek period of games in the Premier League is essentially travelling in the country um, yes. and never never at any point uh, coming home. So the no. wandering Chinch, we wish you well. He is kind of an itinerant now, Andy Hinchcliffe. A little bit. Uh, but yeah. So the, the Everton fan was bemoaning his team's lot, and this is Everton who are you know bottom five of the Premier League. Uh, spent 142 million quid in the summer. It's, they are in the Europa League. They're not doing very well at it, but they are in it. He said it was the worst Everton team he can remember. I heard that on the radio as well. People saying it's the worst Everton team I can remember. To which my response is, you haven't watched enough Everton. Uh, the, yes. so anyway, so or, the, or you've taken a very severe blow to the head and you should visit a medical yeah. professional at the soonest convenient opportunity. I remember, or or you're, you're six months old. Or you're six months old. <laughs> I remember Andy Hinchliffe playing for Everton. So there we go. <laughs> yeah. That the, evidence is overwhelming. The... Um, yeah, so that, that was the Everton kind of side of it. And that was this depiction of, mis- of total misery, that nothing could be worse. And he was sort of listing, listing all the problems with Everton, for everything from, you know, Mashiri not knowing what he's doing to not having a left-sided centre-half, the, 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 broad and the, the broad and the specific. And then the Oldham fan piped up. Oldham at this point were 15th in lead one and said he'd taken a week off work to go and follow them to Milton Keynes and um, one other away game. And that they'd just drawn nil-nil with Gillingham or one-all with Gillingham. Um, and, you know, it was should have been a picture of complete bleakness, but he was he was quite happy because I think there, I think the way that too much of what well, this slightly boring anecdote is driving at is that <laughs> the, the way we think of fans is weighted and the way they behave is weighted massively towards a Premier League fans and b the noisiest Premier League fans from the noisiest Premier League clubs, which are the in fact, I'm not even going to say top six. I would say top five because Spurs aren't that bad. <laughs> the Spurs fans have a slightly different perspective, but United, Liverpool, they, Chelsea... They seem quite buoyant, don't they, Spurs fans? They, even though the silverware count is somewhat sort underwhelming. Of, I mean, every club has its um, less appetising elements among your support. Spurs fans, I'd say, are quite phlegmatic about everything, and they're not too... I don't know, well, the engagements I've had with them, which is the, the other thing we need to come on to, which is social media and how that kind of twists everything but from what I've seen of Spurs fans they are excited by their team and happy they're doing quite well but they're not getting carried away and cry, you know crying that this should be the year they win the title or anything like that they seem relatively relatively kind of yeah re- realistic about things so we're saying that hope kills you example that you've just given of Spurs is because actually the, the hope 
isn't skyrocketing. They're enjoying the journey. <laughs> uh, X Factor is nearly finished, so we can yeah. get away with saying that. Um, but yeah, the, the, the hope and the expectation is not the thing that has got so far out of control that you're never going to reach it. I would take a slightly different perspective, which is that football appears to matter more the further up you go. So it doesn't... How Oldham do on a weekend does not matter any less to an Oldham fan than how Everton do on a weekend. It is the same thing. They are experiencing the same basic sensations. But the projection of the importance of it is much greater. And that, I think, has led to a change in the way that people react to setbacks and to what Steve's touched on, which is what they think they are owed by their team. And that's what increases through, as you go through the leads and up the leads and up towards the top of the Premier League. Yeah. At, at the top level, the, the, any sense of embarrassment, you know, if we stick with the, the Everton example, that is noticed on a national scale, maybe even on a continental global scale. Well, Everton, Everton. Well, Everton are in a rotten run of form. You know, this is humiliating beyond the borders of Merseyside, whereas for a League One, League yeah. Two club, it's it's a very localised issue where it would only really become something greater if, if you lost in a, a derby game, if Oldham were beaten mm. by Rochdale. The other factor here in, in terms of you know, saying having an Everton and an Oldham fan sat on opposite sides of the table is, is the point of reference. Football fans spend so much time communicating only with football fans of the same club mm. that they can become bogged down by the minutiae of the problems within their, within their club system. You know, oh, Manchester United are winning games, but they're not doing it yeah. attractively enough. You know, if you put an Arsenal fan and a Rochdale fan together and the Arsenal fan was moaning about how they didn't qualify for the Champions League this season, well, the Rochdale fan would be, hang on, say, hang on, mate, we've only ever been promoted twice in our existence. And the most iconic football match we've been involved in is the the League Two playoff final. Get that some was perspective. a fantastic match. By but the that's way. It's, it's that, that Steve's completely right. It is that perspective, and it's it's that sense that that an Arsenal fan would sit there in front of an. And this isn't an insult to Arsenal fans, but Arsenal fans would sit there in front of Rochdale fans and complain about not qualifying for the Champions League for the first time in twenty years, yeah. because that is. From their perspective, that is the most important problem in football. And we, we as, as a media, we as fans in general, probably don't reflect that enough. There is, there is no kind of, what's the word, counterbalance to say, actually, do you know what, your problems aren't that massive. You could be Accrington Stanley, or, or I think Stanley doing quite well. That's life though, isn't it? But that is life. We that think, is life. Uh, yeah. even yeah. away from football, I, I think my problems are incredibly important. If and you were are. to have the same problem, Rory, and I'm sure you will at some point, because we're all massively flawed individuals, Clearly. I wouldn't care a jot. So, you know. And thanks. <laughs> That's really nice. This is just no. It is. It's a reflection of life. You get bogged down in your own in your own in what's going on in your own life. That's totally normal and totally natural. But I just think we have to we have to reflect that fact that there is that misery. But I would equally at the same time. I bet Rochdale fans go to Rochdale and moan about the football. Yeah, everybody has a right to moan, but it's about the I suppose that the the perception that we get of it is is about the, the the difference between the floor and the ceiling. So for Arsenal and Rochdale, um, for Arsenal, the the ceiling is potential Champions League winners. Mm. The floor is mid-table. They're not going to get relegated. So that would be an incredibly wide spectrum. Whereas for Rochdale, it's probably promotion or relegation from League One to League Two or League Two to League One, all of which could happen in a context of, well, do you know... Two years ago, we got promoted. So if we get relegated, we could get promoted again. Yeah. So it's a slightly smaller spectrum from our perspective. For them, maybe not. Emotionally, it's the same thing. It's the same incredible roller coaster. And to get promoted is the most wonderful feeling they yeah. could they could have. And, and to get relegated is, is massively crushing for them. But it is a perception from those 
outside that the sense is that at a, at a place like Arsenal or Manchester United because your team is winning but only winning 1-0 and Romelu Lukaku hasn't scored in three games you know these things so it is about context and it is about the level of expectation but it is also about the perspective that everybody else has about what your team is doing and that's something that should be addressed as well we don't need, we don't need to talk about it at length I don't think but just to, to note almost that the media do spend when you think about it a remarkable amount of time addressing very very sort of niche nuanced issues like Manchester United are winning but are they playing well enough yeah. I mean who let's ultim- do a podcast on it ultimately who cares <laughs> even they're winning I mean it's important but it's not important do you know what I mean it's, it's it, we, we all lose perspective to some extent about football yeah that that, that, that drives it so does the, the way that people within the club speak uh, for yeah. example I saw something uh, uh, Manchester City against Feyenoord in the Champions League recently City already qualified from the group stage were able to rotate a little bit were able to blood a couple of uh, young players Phil Foden got uh, that long awaited opportunity and there was something on the text commentary of the game uh, it was e- either on a, from a club source or from a, a local media source that when one of these younger players was introduced as a substitute said it is worth remind it, reminding everybody that this is a demonstration that Manchester City haven't quite got the strength in depth <laughs> that you might anticipate like you spend £150 million on fullbacks yeah. in one transfer window and you're, you're suggesting there's no strength in depth. Oh, you've got Antonio Conte at Chelsea talking about, you know, he, he hasn't got a big enough squad. You've got 40 players, or Chelsea as a club have got 40 players out on loan throughout the entire continent. You can't talk about not having strength in depth. You might have distributed that squad amongst other people, but that, that helps drive the fans then to talk about perceived weaknesses yeah, or... Yeah, yeah. Or lack of quality in certain areas, which are undermining their enjoyment, because the team only won two-one this weekend. And really, if we had a slightly better holding midfielder, we would not have conceded that goal because our defence wouldn't have been so ruthlessly exposed. I do wonder whether this is a new. So my temptation with this is to say that this is all the fault of David Meller, and <laughs> we can blame him entirely, because there's a. This is not a Tory. This is not a Tory thing you're getting on. It's not a Tory thing. It's not a foot fetish thing. And it's not a foot fetish thing. No. So when football phoning thing. When six oh six launched in 1991 under Danny Baker, it was similar to what Danny Baker does now. It was kind of wacky and either really good or completely pointless, depending on whether you enjoyed it or not. And then in 1992, David Mellor took over and turned it into shouting fans shout about stuff. Have you researched this or is this ingrained on your... Okay, no, I'm just, just, any just time, these, these any time Rory says in your memory. Anytime Rory says 1992, you know he's researched it <laughs> yeah. and hands off everybody. It's his book. <laughs> yeah, and you all leave it alone. But that, that, was, that, that kind of, to me, represents kind of a shift in the way that football is talked about so that it became and then, I mean this isn't an insult to 606 which I think is, is expertly handled by Kelly Cates and Ian Wright but for crying out loud I mean some of the calls are let through just I, I, if, I, if I listen to 606 now which is quite rare I turn it off in the space of an hour I'll turn it off seven or eight times you, you just think this guy's an idiot. This woman's drunk. This person shouldn't be on air. No, you're wrong. And that's just the presenters. <laughs> this is, and that, that is... By the way, we no, should say really that isn't. 606 is a, uh, a BBC radio production that happens at six minutes past six yeah. on a Saturday afternoon after the games have happened, just in case there are any foreign listeners who, by the way, everywhere has yeah. the whole fan engagement radio so, programme. Yeah, so. so you have the... It's, 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 talk, it's phone-in culture, talk radio culture. That's the first manifestation of it, where the complaint is put on a pedestal almost, and you end up with, with people just 
complaining because it makes good radio. So that then, does it rather than people ringing up and saying, our manager's done a good job. Yeah. yeah. There's not, there's Regardless no, of the veracity of their yeah. complaint or their statement. The loudest voice complaining gets the, gets the airtime. That then is magnified again by Sky Sports News and the, the kind of importance that is put on football by, by the saturation coverage that we have now that we didn't used to have. You then get social media where you not only get fans in much more constant proximity with each other, fans of other clubs, so it starts to matter a bit more, but also it has a, a, necess- a sort of, not necessarily, but a, an unavoidable confrontational tone, which means that everything is a, is a battle. So you, you end up with this world in which everyone is complaining about something the entire time. The media itself is, is part of it, because I think if you look at the way that we cover football generally, we do seek out confrontations and scandals and managers blasting things, managers saying... You know, something fair. There was a great example with um, with Pep Guardiola when Guardiola called Spurs the Harry Kane team. I wasn't there, but I can guarantee that was a compliment. I can guarantee that was Pep trying to say, "Isn't Harry Kane amazing?" And oh, that Harry, that Harry Kane team. Just knowing how Guardiola talked, that is then spun into this incredible confrontation between him and Pochettino because it was put to Pochettino like it wasn't yeah. that it was a negative thing yeah. so Pochettino inflamed it by saying hang on a minute that's disrespectful Which, we shouldn't do that but then it was put to Guardiola that Pochettino was annoyed and yeah. Guardiola said uh, why yeah because, because it was a compliment. he was there when he said it and it wasn't supposed to and be a Pochettino has, is within his rights to get angry about it because he was told it wasn't a compliment where it obviously was intended as a compliment so we Again, everything is kind of comes through this prism of confrontation and it matters loads and everyone's angry all the time and this has to be better and this big team isn't doing this right so there's a big problem. We're looking for problems because people read things about... I remember when I was working for British papers, you'd, you'd end up, you'd dread Arsenal losing at the weekend because it just meant you had to write another inquest about what's wrong at Arsenal. But everyone knew what was wrong at, what was wrong at Arsenal because it's been wrong at Arsenal for it's, 10 years. Yes, it's the same thing with the last piece yeah, you do. You do it every fortnight. And was that not easy? Could you not just change some of the <laughs> copies in the Arsenal and republish? A lot of copy and paste in. And West Ham, copy, cut, copy, West Brom, paste. Copy, paste, thesaurus. Yeah. That's all, that was what I think. It's what like one of those uh, satire news websites yeah, where yeah, the yeah. same story crops up once every six yeah. months so they can just republish. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So, the, well, yeah, the, the Onion with the... Um, the, Amer- the drunk crime in the States yeah, yeah. then That's is the, the, is the best example, yeah. But so I think you end up with this world in which people are almost encouraged to complain and they are told that their complaints not only have value but, are, but have priority, regardless of how sort of imbecilic those complaints are, whether it's, you know, we haven't won in the right way. And the best 606 episodes are the ones where the presenters challenge yeah. those fans. So you're getting the, the good content of the complaint, but you're also adding an element of challenging their perception mm. or their what they assume is the, the truth and so those those make the best in my opinion yeah. the, the best conversations rather than just sit there here's another caller they rant and they go okay thanks here's another caller they rant because yeah. it's not necessarily the same content and when they do get somebody who calls in as you were suggesting Rory with a with a compliment to say I'm just calling to say what a great job Sean Dyche is doing at Burnley he's made them tough to beat that's the foundation for all the success they're having Congratulations. And that's the end of it. Yeah. And then they'll say, oh, brilliant. Has anybody got any, anything else nice to say about Sean Dyche or anybody else? No more calls yeah, on the yeah, subject. Yeah. Because it just, it's nice to hear, and, but it's treated as being so completely out of left field that it's not the platform for a discussion. And the, the call is ended. Thank you very much for that thought. Uh, you know, if anybody else wants to come in and then nobody does because either they don't feel it or that they're, they're weighed down under mm. the myriad of complaints. But what I don't know is whether all of that, I think all of that has exacerbated the... T- the t- 
the tendency of football fans to complain. But what I, what I don't know is whether it invented the tendency of football fans to complain. So if I speak to my dad about going to see Leicester when he was a kid, he wouldn't tell you that there were old fellas in the crowd groaning at throw-ins, because that's not what he remembers. Whether football fans have always gone to matches and sort of whinged that it could be better, I don't know. The other thing that has to be brought into it is ticket prices, obviously, that if you're paying loads for a ticket, you you feel kind of... You reserve the right, yes. Yeah, as though you're owed a bit of entertainment. And it's tr- to be fair, it is true, if you go to games in Germany, there isn't that same sense of, oh, when the, when the ball goes out of play, because the tickets were like 15 euros, and there's not that same financial investment. That's really important. But whether this is... Well, it, Steve could be right. It could just be that you bond over things that you're unhappy about. We I should don't know. The complaint... Yes, it's made either in a public forum on the radio or on Twitter. But those fans who are complaining because they reserve the right to complain about their teams never allow others to complain. Of course not. And make the same point. So they are still fiercely loyal and protective and often, we have to say, defensive as well. So in the example that we started the uh, pot off with, nobody, first of all, you had a dig at Liverpool. We'll come on to that in just a moment, whether they're a little bit like Arsenal something yeah. of a crisis club that if they if they're not winning every game then there's something something going on of greater significance than perhaps there actually is but also if a Manchester City fan were to make that point about Manchester United or even a Liverpool fan were to make that point about Manchester United that same Manchester United fan who'd been moaning and groaning about what had happened would completely about turn yeah. and not allow that opinion to be made so yes it's miserable but within a slightly different context of it's my misery, you are not allowed to use that as a stick to beat me or my team with. Yeah, it's like you can criticise your family and your friends or say something negative about them, but if somebody else dare do the same, you'd be the first to leap to their defence. Depends on which member of my family, but yes. Uh, Oh, yeah, not that one, obviously. But we all agree on that. Yeah, that's true. And and, and she knows. (laughs) Uh, And she's often said the same about you, by the way. Yeah. Uh, No, it's a family thing. Well... How about those fans who vote with their feet? So I mentioned West Brom and West Ham just as a cut and paste thing a moment or two ago. It's reminded me that that West Ham fans are known for leaving and uh, previous stadium, current stadium quite early. if Things aren't going their way, making their uh, thoughts known about, uh, if you were listening last week, Mark Noble and others. Um, West Brom, until they sacked Tony Pulis, obviously, it was five, 6,000 down on capacity at the Hawthorne. So people voting with their feet. So there is a, a stage further on where instead of going and moaning, people are genuinely deciding not to go. Is that, is that the same thing or is that where it's got so bad that actually they have a tangible reaction to it rather than just a, just a whinge? So I'd say that, I'd, I might be wrong, I'd say that's actually the opposite. So I think if you're a football fan who is, who's paying for a ticket... Uh, and you're going to a football match, and then you are leaving before the end for reasons other than traffic, which I personally think is legitimate. It's really annoying sitting in traffic. If you, if you want to spend 40 quid on, on a ticket and leave 10 minutes before, before the end, that's your own stupid fault. It, I, if, if, if beating the traffic is that important to you, that's fine. You should have planned your week better, but yeah. Yeah, if, you know, if, if, if your main concern is I will knock off you know, 10% of the value of this because I want, want to get home quicker, then fine, it's up to you, it's your money. But the, I think if you're, if you're actually leaving the stadium or not going to the stadium at all, that is not sort of self-inflicted navel-gazing misery. That is genuine unhappiness at something yeah. that's happening to your club, it's, which it's, is really important. It's not self-indulgent. It, exactly. It's, it's, it's something else. It's something that clearly matters, as it did to West Brom with Pulis, as it has to West Ham with their various ineptitudes over the last 140 years. <laughs> the, Hang on, they won the World Cup. That's true. Uh, we're in a weird kit. Um, <laughs> but the, the... Yeah, so I think that's really... Um, 
that's completely different. I think the, what the, the original email from Martin and his friend was referring to was the low-level grumbling of this isn't good enough and that, that sense that whatever it is is never good enough and that there is a, a section of people who go to football matches seemingly determined to be unhappy with what they see. Yes, and that the, a late winning goal in an otherwise below-par performance was actually unwelcome amongst that yeah. section of supporters at Old Trafford on that occasion because it meant that they weren't entitled to grumble afterwards because winning the three points was what it was all about. You, you can't go to the pub. You can go to the pub afterwards and, oh, I wish that had been a bit more entertaining. Mm. You know, that ticket cost me 50-odd quid. And, you know, I didn't feel like I'm getting my value for money and Jose Mourinho's tactics were a little bit tedious. But ultimately, we got three points and that's what it's all about. Is that they'd almost, the, sen- the sense that Martin got from his friend was that those sat around them would have rather it finished nil nil or what or one one or whatever it was because then they really would have been able to lay into yeah. the, the club and the manager and the players. So but I also, have a theory on this. That, just very quickly, people often want their team to, if they're going to lose a game, to lose heavily, heavily to in, to affect change as well. Yes. They'd rather yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the whole Donald Trump America thing. A lot yeah. of people who before the election said, "I'm going to leave." America if Donald Trump gets elected then Donald Trump gets elected and people are saying why haven't you left they're saying well you sit on which side of the argument the argument suggests that you want your country to fail just to prove a point Mm. or you would rather that things aren't as bad as you predicted that they would be because it means that your country is is doing better so it's the same argument in football do you go on the side of you're so desperate for change that you'd rather your own club suffers or would you sit somewhere less to the extreme where you just accept that your team isn't that great and nothing will change, but on that day, it wasn't something you enjoyed. Well, so, I again, I think you have to separate the, the trivial from the consequential because that there is a form of unha- unhappiness within fans that, is, that does matter where you do want your team to lose because you think this manager's got to go. I, I, I certainly had that situation with, with the club I support where I have thought it is better now that they lose because that just brings... Four, goals four and five would help me. Yeah, because it takes the sticking plaster off and, and it means that things might get better in the long run. I went to see Sean Dice last week and he made a really good point with a metaphor, a parable almost, about televisions. Did you do your Sean Dice impression? I asked all questions Sean to him. Ju- in, Sean Dice. No, he, he, Sean started off by saying we didn't get on, which I think is unfair. And well, you've said then, that before. I think we do. I think we'd like each other if only he'd give me a chance. <laughs> and the, the, just got off but, the we then, but we then had a really nice conversation. The story about, of Rory Smith's dating history. The, yeah, I know, yeah. The, um, Does Sean know Kate? Maybe she could have... He, she, she maybe could vouch for me. Yeah. Anyway, I went to see Sean Dyche, and he used the, the parable of the TV, which is that he has a... He said, I've got a TV that's massive, and it's flat screen, it does everything, I can order my food on it, and this, 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 that, and the other. I will change it in four years' time. And my wife will ask me why, and I will just say, I don't know, uh, I just feel think we, 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 sh- you know, we need to upgrade the TV. And that is how people think now. So his, his view, the Sean Dyshian worldview, is that there is a kind of a yearning for change in everything that applies within football clubs as well. So what you see now is that, yeah, if you're not, you know, United are doing brilliant under Mourinho, but there will be a section of fans who just want change because that's how they think of football, because that's how they think of the world, which is if this isn't perfect, you get rid of it. The grass is greener. The grass is always greener. I think that there is one of the... There's loads and loads of stuff at play. What's really interesting about the fact that it was at Old Trafford that Martin Stafford's friend spotted... I don't friend or work colleague, whichever, spotted this dissatisfaction and grumbling is that that is the tone of social media, dissatisfaction and grumbling. That's what Twitter does constantly. 
and I think that part of the reason why you get fans on social media who appear to be happier when their team is failing that, than when they are succeeding is because they have previously expressed an opinion that a player or a manager is useless. And the one thing you support, we all support far more than our football teams, is our own opinions. And there comes a point where you want your opinion to be right more than you want your team to win. So, you know, Everton lose and you want Koeman out and you it's proof, look, this is Koeman out. And if they, if they win 2-1 and, and they're a bit lucky and it doesn't really prove anything, then you, you've got three points, but that's only a, a minor comfort because it looks like maybe you're wrong and you don't want to be wrong. So you take joy in being proved right about how bad your team is. I think that's a, that's a, a big thing on social media. If that's bled into actual football crowds, which, to be honest, I think it might have done, because I don't think it's—I think it's rooted in 606 and it's rooted in media culture and all that—then that does suggest that's where that unhappiness is coming from. That people are in, in that crowd thinking, "I want us to win, but if we don't win perfectly, I'd like us to lose, because then I'll look clever." What you say is true, also, of the more optimistic end of the the football fan spectrum, because I do know lots of very optimistic Manchester United fans as well, for example, who are always using an Anthony Martial goal as a reason for the justification of what Manchester United paid for him. You know, whenever yeah. whatever was said, fans of other clubs saying, what a waste of money, never heard of this guy. Whenever he scores, I know United fans will post on Twitter, well, not all scoffing about the £50 million price tag now, but well, one goal yeah. in isolation doesn't justify that. But your optimism is admirable. It, Steve's quite right. It is, maybe the misery is the, the, the necessary flip side to the optimism of loyalty. So you, fans always want to believe that you know the next signing is the... And it's natural, we all do it. I'm not saying that we're better than fans, because we're not. We're, if anything, worse. But you, know, you want to believe that this is the final piece of the jigsaw, that this is going to solve all your problems, that your player is the best player in the world, that, you know, that such and such is, is, a really good, is actually going to turn out to be a really good midfielder. He is going to be a really good midfielder. I know he looks terrible now, but he's going to be great. He's going to be fine. Look at his past completion stats yeah. from the weekend. And so you will, you will, you'll, you'll sort of harness any facts at all that you can muster or any evidence mm. at all that you can muster even if it's stripped completely of context to prove that point about how great things are so maybe there is a necessary flip side that the exact same process comes into play when you when think when you think you perceive that things are bad you will harness anything you can to and relentlessly drone on about how bad they are yes it's the two sides of the same coin and the, the coin is the opinion they, yeah. they want to be right if they had said that anthony martial was a waste of money they will say what you said. Well, come on, one goal yeah. doesn't change everything. Yeah. But when he has a game where he doesn't do well, they'll use that as a as a staging post for yet another argument about that Anthony Martial was a waste of money. So, and and fans of other clubs will obviously choose whichever side again stick to beat them with. It ties into something we've talked about in the past about football fans is that confirmation bias thing, doesn't it? Once you've made your yeah. mind up about yeah, something, yeah. you'll just look for the bits of evidence to support that, and you'll sort of blindly ignore anything that is contrary to what you want to believe. Yeah. And that is true whether you are a, a pessimist or an optimist. But the, what, what maybe has changed, I guess, and it's impossible to know, and I don't know if we have any, any listeners who have been... I mean, we're, we're all in our 30s, just change isn't here, but we are, we are all... I'm clinging on. Yeah. We are all... <laughs> Average age-wise, we've... Uh... But we're all creatures, really, of modern football culture. There's not... We're not old enough to, rem- to really... I, I certainly don't remember anything before. I do I remember bits of football before the Premier League, but I don't remember kind of what it was like to be a fan and what fans were like before the Premier League and I suspect it's the same for you two but it'd be interesting to know whether this is something that grumbling has always happened I'm sure it has I suspect the change is the speed with which the grumbling takes hold which is that I mean I think there was a Jurgen Klopp out Twitter account after his first game 
from someone who was a sort of Brendan Rogers loyalist and couldn't believe he'd been sacked. So that, that's, an, again, an opinion-based thing rather yeah. than anybody being whimsical. Well, so the BBC... Did we talk about this last week, the BBC football survey thing, where they found that fans, no. in, fans increasingly follow players? I, as a listener, no. um, uh, can't remember that happening. We did cover a lot of ground with that, Hugh, though, didn't we? Really got good. so much done. Yeah, it was more efficient. There were yeah. fewer tangents, yeah. and we were, well, we were in and out inside an hour. How we ironic, were, we were, because yeah. this is a massive tangent. So back yeah. to... Uh, no, so there was, there, was, there was this thing about fans increasingly, especially younger fans, follow players as much as they follow teams, and that they think this could be some sort of seismic shift in the way... Certainly that, global fans do. Yeah, the way that football is supported, and that it may well be the case, I don't know. But I, I actually think that, play, that fans increasingly follow their own opinions, and that's what they're supporting. So if you, if you, went, if you supported Brendan Rodgers at Liverpool you will end up not support or not necessarily not supporting Liverpool because Rodgers isn't there anymore, but you might be less inclined to allow his successor. Depending on slack. how forcefully you made that point exactly. originally. And how wedded you, you feel to it. Exactly. Which if, is the if, same as your team. If you were shouting that from the rooftops, you'd be much more likely yeah. to say Jurgen Klopp out as if yeah. you were saying, well, it's okay. So and, would you be, and, you'd, and you'd be using his subsequent trophy success oh, at Celtic as yeah. evidence of what a job he could have done at Liverpool if he'd been given more time and you'd ignore all of the other factors that are involved I in I am Scottish confident football. that if Brendan Rodgers had, had remained at Liverpool he could have beaten Motherwell in the Scottish League Cup final <laughs> yeah. The, the, um, yeah and I think, I think that is the big change is that the speed with which people maybe run out of patience and turn to that grumbling which has always been there and also what they will the hills that they are willing to die on are different because they have these platforms from which to stream their opinions. And you will be more loyal to your opinion and to not looking stupid and not admitting you were wrong than you will be to your football team. And I think that is a crucial difference. And you are, and I think we have mentioned this before on the podcast, um, you are unable as a fan to accept hurt you would much rather scapegoat and blame yes. than just allow something bad to happen and to, to mourn and to deal with the consequences. You will, you will find somebody to blame and you will be aggressive. And that, that, that's how and, and everybody's like, whether it's a referee yeah. or it's a mistake a player made or a complete injustice. There are myriad reasons why you would do that. I want to finish the conversation with um, something that was prompted by what you said earlier about Oldham. Mm. There are those who enjoy their footballing travails, not because necessarily about the competition or the, the level of achievement, but, but because it's good fun supporting their club. Um, it's preposterous to me, supporting a club that doesn't really win anything ever, that you hear fans of clubs like, for example, Manchester City saying, I preferred it when we were in Division One. Um, that to my ears, is, is crazy because Manchester City are playing some of the best football this country has ever seen. They are likely to win more than one competition this year. And 15 years ago, they were not in the Premier League. Mm. So this is, is you know, to, to most onlookers is preposterous. But there is an, a kernel of truth in that because it's not necessarily for that fan about the winning and the losing, it's about the journeys to Gillingham and yeah. um, to Milton Keynes. Supporting your club is a different pursuit than you will find for those clubs, as you mentioned, five out of the top six, where it is life and death, do and die. Every victory is is a, a dagger in the heart of your opposition, and every defeat is the end of the world. But we mustn't we mustn't romanticise fans of smaller teams because it is a bit patronising. I think surely part of that is because if you're supporting Oldham, but you are naturally inclined to grouse every time you lose a game and demand the manager be sacked. The rewards for following Oldham whilst being like that are not going to be worth continuing to follow Oldham. You will fall away. So that it, 
there's this element of natural selection about it. That the people who, who will you know, follow Oldham, the 10, 15,000 sort of hardcore loyalists of a team like Oldham, will not be given to thinking, well, look, we've got to play better. I'm not accepting this. This is unacceptable. What's the point? You're in, you know, you're in League One. Hopefully it wasn't patronising because we talked no, no, earlier no, yeah, on about yeah. the ceiling and the floor yeah. being very much within the realms of your expectations it, because you have the experience and you know what is likely to happen and you are a lot more... Um, Real, just, just, just realistic. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, and you're more wedded. But, but to realism kind of, yeah. is not necessarily dull. Realism no. can be incredibly good fun, and you find great joy. Yeah. and the sense of achievement of of a lifetime of following a club that, like we mentioned, Rochdale only be prom- only been promoted twice in their whole history. Yeah, and you to follow them, you you will take pleasure in the moments that, in the last minute equalisers that maybe for a bigger club, the the section of the crowd that want the manager sacked. Don't want the last minute equaliser. Deep down, as they've 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 said on their Facebook pages, I want the manager out, and they know that if they get in the last minute equaliser, he might keep his job, and they might be wrong. So you wouldn't you don't get that with Oldham and Rochdale and and Gillingham and all those teams. You get a section of people who are maybe extracting a different experience from being a football fan. I just in terms of the romanticisation of it, I just think that's not necessarily a better way of being a fan. I think it's just a different way of being a fan. And the romanticisation of it also buys into something else that you were, you were talking about earlier, the fact that, you know, that Everton fan was talking about this is the worst Everton team I've ever seen. No, it's just not the best Everton team you've ever seen. It's just not the Everton of the, the 1980s. And in the same way as that sort of the, the, the text that sparked this all off, you know, the suggested the enduring appeal of Liverpool. Well, Liverpool are playing some great football at the moment. They're not just, co- they're, they, they're just not conquering at home and abroad as they were during the 1970s and 80s. It's perspective, again, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. Liverpool are one of the 30 best football teams in the world. Yeah, you, you, just because you're... You've like what got, you want. Cause just because you've got memories of something better yeah. doesn't mean that what you've got now isn't good. Yeah, exactly. And it goes to show that uh, emotions are very much extreme. It's very difficult for anybody to keep a level head, particularly if they're not in control, which is... Being a football fan, you are not in control. So you are passive and you have to accept everything. And hence, one's reaction is sometimes uh, one of great extremes. So um, before we finish, in the absence of Chinch and a soccer story, we'll bring you um, some of your correspondence following our chat about joy on last week's pod. We asked what brought you joy from football. So here are some of your responses. Um, We'll start with Ronan Megan and Chris Worrell, who both got in touch uh, to suggest that Gilfie Sigurdsson's goal against Southampton in the weekend just past must have been the best thing that Rory has ever seen after expressing his joy at seeing a crossbar struck. Well, what I really like is when the, the shot hits the crossbar and doesn't go in. So in so a way, it's the Leroy worst Sane thing I've ever seen. against Huddersfield where he banged one yes. in from a free kick and it just almost went further back from the free kick where yeah. the free kick was that, taken. A proper so, clanner against the bar, that's what you want. So just for anyone who's not seen that goal, a, a shot that hits the underside of the crossbar bounces down, hits the post, spins up and hits the crossbar again before just crossing the line inside the other post did not give you the right level of satisfaction. It, it was satisfying, but it's not what I wanted. <laughs> what no. brings Rory joy is a prescribed exact thing. It's a very kind of <laughs> mechanical, it's a very mechanical joy. No, it's, 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 yeah, hitting the bar is magical. Whatever, whatever happens afterwards, it's just better when a shot... It's better imagining what might have been. <laughs> That's what hitting the bar is. It's, it's potentiality, and it's, it's wonderful. If it goes in, you know. You Qu- know it's gone in. Quite a lot of the conversation today, and indeed over nearly a year of Set Piece Menu podcasts, is 
Rory's expectations not being met. Yeah, <laughs> being in line. A little yeah. bit disgusted about it and I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, this from Matt Bailey, who uh, a lot of people know as the other best man. He says that uh, what brings him joy... Uh, by the way, he loves an in-off. He prefers a goal in off the post than he does just... Oh, well, yeah, back that's normal. He yeah. loves an in-off. Oh, hang um, on. What about if it, like, properly... Like, if you get one properly in the corner... In, no, a, in a big billowing net. If, you, if it's properly no, in the corner, that's to, really nice. In-off is better regardless. You know, remember when they used to have the, um, the stanchions on the post? Oh, the, the U-shaped yeah, yeah, and they got stuck the in the, the stanchions. Post no, I, I didn't like it when they got stuck. I thought that was a bit tacky, but I liked it when they, when they got smacked and you, you got that really satisfying sort of thunk as it went in. That was really nice. Um, it, Matt also says the joy of the random chant, usually from the away end. Um, by the way, keep your chinch chants coming in, if only to hear Steve sing again. Um, the, the example that Matt sent with that comment was a fan in the away end. I think, from looking at the video, it was at Derby County's ground. And the away fan was walking around with a Mars bar and sort of up and down the steps and then placing the Mars bar on a random person's head. And the rest of the crowd would cheer, he's got a Mars bar on his head. And this would go on for a bit. And then he'd remove the Mars bar and find another unwilling victim for he's got a Mars bar. On it. And this went on for the entire second I'm half. I'm fascinated round. by the people who go to football matches and then don't watch football. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, by the way, is the, the genesis of pretty much everything that happens in a day of test match cricket, yeah. uh, particularly yeah, yeah, yeah. in Leeds. If you'd like to go uh, to Headingley and watch, uh, you won't watch anything. You'll just watch people with Mars bars on their head. Yes, uh, those those chinch chants, by the way, we love them. Thank you very much indeed. Please do keep them coming in. You know uh, the usual addresses. Ruben Pinder says the joy of goal line clearances. And then we could add perhaps the joy of terrible misses to that. And I enjoy a terrible lower league goal. And hopefully this isn't too patronising. No, it is patronising. I'm going to say it. Do it anyway. When you, when you watch goal roundups of lower league football, you tend to see one out of every six or seven goal is seven or eight attempted clearances, seven or eight attempted shots. And eventually it's stabbed in hilariously from somebody who's probably three quarters, at least on the way down to being on the floor from two yards out. And there's by the end of it, 18 people within six yards of the goal. (laughs) It's just, I love them. I, yeah, I always feel a bit embarrassed watching those. I'd put a goal line clearance, a really good goal line clearance, especially with the head. A header where it's a low cross, it's, it's flashing across the goal, defender clears it over his own bar from low down. That is... Unintentionally, spe- because he's tried to clear it out and it's yeah. shinned it and it's yeah. spun over his head. Same yeah. with when goalkeepers say... You know when goalkeepers do that sort of... They come out like twisting their body in that sort of V-shape and the shot goes under them and they get a palm on it and it palms it down and over. And they look like they're really clever. They think, oh, I've made a great save. But really, they've been beaten and got lucky. I like that. Uh, Jacob Davis says, I agree with Steve. And then inserts an exclamation mark no, no, within I, brackets. I, I oh, really? <laughs> I was hoping that that was Jacob. Very often. Because it's a completely preposterous thing. Arsenal nil, Liverpool nil in the 2015-16 season was one of the best games uh, that he has ever seen. You mentioned that a good nil-nil, tactically yeah. speaking at least, um, is, is a joy to behold. I, I also got a message from somebody on Twitter in response to that, uh, that comment asking me for what I thought was my tactical performance of the weekend <laughs> afterwards. That could be a, that could be a theme. That Steve's might be a thing, yeah. Tactical performance. Yeah. He, he only watches about four or five games because he's got to concentrate on even like classic tactical performances with Steve Wyeth. We could use it to replace <laughs> Chinch's story. Yeah, that's true. I, yeah. I, I, I suggested in response that that tactical performance of the week was Celtic scoring early at PSG <laughs> just to rattle them. But I'm a big believer in that. I'm a big believer, A, in that you shouldn't annoy opponents who are better than you by scoring. And B, I'm a firm believe that you shouldn't waste your goals so you what, don't, don't score them early don't score seven goals in one game oh 
Straw two in three games and then one in the fourth. You <laughs> that's, only, yeah, that's excellent math. I'm a genuine. I'm a genuine. This is this is ridiculous, but I'm a genuine believer that you are a lot. Each team is allotted a certain number of goals in life. Don't waste them all on beating Bastia. Yeah, I, I had to explain to. <laughs> freeze, freeze your goals, put them in a the fridge, and then bring get them two, out. When you need get two. Get two and just play football. <laughs> I had to explain to to that's Rory, not, Mourinho, not, not Rory Smith, that six-year-old Rory, that you don't get extra points for scoring a lot lot more goals. I think he was under the impression that it was three points for a win yeah. unless you scored four, five, six goals in which case you then got but the rugby the, bonus the, 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 like, like yeah, in exactly stupid it. sports like rugby yeah <laughs> okay can of worms opened uh, you, you mentioned about oh, we better give these people more, more points they've, they've tried really hard <laughs> well done well literally tried really hard oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you mentioned about teams doing things that it came out of the result of the, the goal of straw chat uh, teams doing things really well um, is is a source of great joy. I remember watching um, Arsenal in the early years under Arsene Wenger were just fantastic. When they they, they would beat. Why isn't like Bruce Rehart? <laughs> Arsenal under Bruce Rehart. What a signing Dennis Bergkamp was. But when they they would beat teams five and six, I remember they, did they win six one or six nil at Middlesbrough or something like that. Mm. And they just it was just glorious. It was everything that Arsene Wenger. What's good about Arsene Wenger was was done brilliantly. But on the flip side of that, players doing things really badly in isolated moments bring me incredible joy they're the 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 kind of thing you, you sit around youtube and somebody's oh gee, have, you, have you ever seen that and then everybody gathers around and each individual person if they've seen it for the first time has the same reaction and that happened to me on on two occasions the first was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's red card against Newcastle if you haven't seen it google it it's incredible i can't remember which Newcastle player was clear but he chases back some 60 yards yeah. and absolutely hacks his legs away. No, no chance yeah. of getting the ball. No Taking one for the team deliberately. No pretense of trying to make a de- defensive tackle. Absolutely he, he, fantastic. He, he was honest about his intentions. It was it's brilliant. And uh, so if you haven't seen that. And also there was, there was a moment where somebody showed me a, uh, when Graham Sunas was playing for Rangers. There's a tackle. Um, I don't know who he's playing against. Oh, yeah, I've seen this one. The, yeah. the, the tackle where he basically kick somebody just south of the groin area yeah. and gets a yellow card. Yeah. <laughs> I am given a lot of joy, full stop, by tactical fouls and even more joy by players blatantly like putting their arms around an opponent's waist as they break, as they break clear and basically just want just... I mean, even if they're sent off for it, I just love it. You, you just see that. And you, it's, it's the look of frustration on the, on the attacking player's face makes me really happy. <laughs> well, that's good. I, um, I did a game recently, commentated on a game recently, where there was a lot of that going on. And the referee was producing yellow cards, having just shrugged his shoulders. He's yeah. <laughs> like, what, what more do you expect there, me to do? There was do? a brilliant one in that flicked up on my, on my Twitter of German Lutz playing for River Plate who races out of, I forget who they were playing, but he races out of his box and onto a through ball and catches it, the goalkeeper, 10 yards outside his box. And he's there holding the ball. The referee gets the red card out and all his teammates are going, what's that for? <laughs> <laughs> and you sort of think, well, he's, 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 he's got the ball in his hand. He's standing there. Where he's standing. <laughs> He's 25 yards out of the goal and he's got it in his hands. What do you think it's for? He's How are you protesting? He's stood so far out of his goal that even Ronaldo wouldn't yeah. shoot from that. And I'm sort of thinking, I'd love to know what he was, what just looked himself was complaining to the referee. So what's he saying? Don't send me off. It was a mistake. Yeah. Uh, that was a Hugh Ferris-sponsored uh, tangent. Uh, we're back to uh, the correspondence. Uh, Jamie Parkin says, the ball clearing the stands after a couple of bounces yeah. on the roof. Uh, we love that. And Gary Parks, when the ball hits the corner flag but doesn't go out of play. 
Yes, brilliant. Well, yeah. yeah, really like Thank that. you to all of you who got in touch. Do keep them coming. You get the impression that if Chinch isn't here again, which may well bring some of you joy, uh, that we could carry on talking about this uh, for some time. So at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And for all those um, people who said that they enjoyed last week's episode because I wasn't there... That doesn't bring me very much that joy. That's mean. Um, That's mean. I thought you were going to say we, that was me. We, <laughs> mate, that was mainly people related to me. Yeah. No, well, and us, ourselves, yeah. So Steve's mum and dad got in touch. Uh, please do subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory and to Steve. Andy will be back, of course, uh, shortly. And to you for listening as well. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. You'll have missed this because you're on honeymoon, but Chinch was in the studio for Sky before the... Huddersfield Man City game because obviously Chinch played in the Huddersfield Man City game where City won 10-1 yes Chinch was one of the few people that they not to score a hat trick uh, but <laughs> is, that the, is that the sole reason they wheeled him out I think so yeah it was, he, it, was they, it suddenly occurred to them that they had someone who could talk about this bought in from but the cold of the commentary game was, at the end of November to talk about a game that barely anybody remembers so much, so much like whenever I hear you on BT Sport or see Hugh on, on the BBC I get a little. I get. I get really happy when I hear Chinch's voice on on commentary when you're watching. You, you know, you flick it on and there's nothing else on, and it's like Preston against someone pointless, and and it's Chinch. That's like, Chinch. Yeah, that's nice. And although I don't, two minutes later, Chinch. Yeah, you don't watch it. <laughs> I'm not as happy as Kate is when when Kate sees Hugh on the TV. She'll she'll come and get me. Rory, Hugh's on telly, and he's like, well, I know that's what he does for a living. I don't care. <laughs> Job. I'm not interested. Look, man, there he is. Look, man turns up for work. If you're if you're, if you're on the ten o'clock news, she goes nuts. And, and and when that happens, it is for a moment, like four seconds. Yeah, but she does absolutely, she does bananas. It's just a tease. And also because it's Hugh and Hugh on the 10 o'clock news. That, that yeah, they're just very confusing, yeah. Exciting. I mean, the, yeah, the other yeah, Hugh's yeah. a lot better. Well, yeah. but the, um, <laughs> He's on for longer, so you've the, got more chance to assess him. That's true. But the um, it was brilliant seeing him in, in the studio because he was with Henri, who's, who's very kind of Thierry Henri, and doesn't really very. say anything. And he was with Pards, who obviously... If he, very was, if, if he was chocolate, would commit various <laughs> sexual acts upon himself. <laughs> but you just had... If he was chocolate, he'd, he'd, he'd lick himself all over. He really would. <laughs> and, yeah, it, it, and he was with Thierry, Thierry Henry, who, who isn't, who's, you know, very... Kind of doesn't really say anything, and it, but has a very TV manner. He is he is buku buku Thierry Henry. Yeah, and he was with Pards, who obviously is, is sort of professionally Pards, and <laughs> says and that was, on his card. Was just being. I am Pards. Professionally Pards. A lot of professional Pards. Professionally Pards would be an ITV ITV4 reality TV show actually, um, <laughs> set in Ibiza. Uh, the but you had Chinch, and what was really interesting was Chinch was talking like he does on the podcast. He wasn't being like you know that people pundits do TV voices. Yes, and they talk like they're on TV. I think we all do TV voices. But Chinch wasn't. Chinch was just cracking jokes, and he, he's you know the, I think David Jones, the presenter, said to him, you know, did you you know what was it like playing in that team? And Chinch just went, well, we didn't do it every week. That's the problem. <laughs> and he was just he was but he wasn't taking it at all. He wasn't nearly serious enough to be on Sky. I, I kept imagining there was a voice in his ear going, Andy, Andy, <laughs> it's more important than this. <laughs> Have you not read the Sky memo? We take all Premier League football very, very seriously. Don't pretend it doesn't matter, Andy. Don't pretend it wasn't the best day of your life.